1994 is when that first banner was launched with Hotwired, and then the phone started to ring. I'll never forget October 2nd, 1994 is the day that Hotwired launched. October 3rd, 1994 is the day that my entire staff quit. It's been sitting at these two card tables coding all night for weeks. We were exhausted and we didn't have any money. And they said, look, there's a lot easier ways to live than doing this. So my, my staff of two quit. I'm Shereen Patek and this is Starting Out. Digiday's podcast where I take the personal route with the movers and shakers in the marketing industry to find out their story, how they became the leaders they are today, and what's their special power that makes their craft so remarkable. Jonathan Nelson is the CEO at Omnicom Digital, a global marketing and communications holding company that employs 84,000 people around the world. And Jonathan is a true veteran of the so-called digital space. In 1993, he founded Organic, and in his long career, he's seen some serious highs and serious lows in the business of advertising, including, as you just heard, facing the music when his staff quit after they delivered on their first big gig. What happened after and more on today's show. But we begin by going all the way back when he graduated with a liberal arts degree and his passion for music, which took him to New York at the legendary music venue, The Knitting Factory. It wasn't legendary when he got there. So I started, I graduated college in 1989. A couple of my friends had started a new club, which they called The Knitting Factory. And I called them up and I said, hey, you know, I'm graduating with a couple of liberal arts degrees. I don't know what to do. Um, can I come and sleep on your floor and do whatever it takes and sort of, you know, kind of experience this thing. And at that time, the knitting factory was maybe a year old. So it was very, very early on and people were not, you know, it, it's not what you think of today. If you know the knitting factory, it was a very, very small, it was like 20 feet wide and about 75 feet long. It was a storefront on Houston street. And I slept upstairs uh, in what was the backstage room. So I would have to clear out in order for the bands to use the backstage. And then I, I literally painted the walls and sanded the floors. And then I learned how to be a sound person, ran their studio, ran a radio show. It was a great experience because I got to do everything, tour management, night management. I learned how to run music venues. Yeah, we just did everything. Was there, I mean, was there a sense of kind of, is this, is this what I'll do for the rest of my life? Am I going to, is this going to be my career path? Was that part of the... What was going through your head while doing all other than I'm having an amazing time. This is what I love. I never thought it was a really long-term career because I knew that the type of stuff that I liked was not really commercial. And so at that time, I don't know, Madonna and Britney Spears, who are great musicians, but not my, not my thing. That was how you actually could afford a house and have a family and, you know, have a sort of quote, normal life would be working for folks like that, which was uninteresting to me. So I always thought of it as a passion, but I, you know, I take my passion pretty seriously. So it ended up that I got lucky, made a little bit of money, and then did all this other music stuff. I co-founded Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, which is probably one of the largest bluegrass festivals in the world. It's a free show, first weekend in October. Um, we usually do about 110 bands. This will be our 18th year this year. Uh, I co-owned Slims and the Great American Music Hall, which are two very famous music venues in San Francisco. Um, Slims is 30 years old, and the Music Hall has been a club since 1907. Uh, then I'm involved in a couple other festivals and smaller clubs. It's just something that I love, and I, it's something I also like to pass along. 
by owning clubs and you know booking bands that most people wouldn't normally go see. Do you play an instrument? Uh, I play guitar very badly. That's interesting. I mean, why why go sort of the I love music route the way you went? Did you ever think like, could I be a performer? Could I be someone who's on stage? Was that ever part of sort of something you that flashed through your mind when you were maybe younger? Yeah, I had a, a extremely brief career as a DJ, and kind Did you of have a DJ name. Uh, no, this is sort of pre DJ name era, and what I was doing was mixing sort of my live sound experience with kind of early electronic music. What made you musically inclined? What made you be into music? I don't know. It just there's something that really touches, uh, you know, it kind of connects directly to your heart or to your soul or whatever it is. I don't mean to get too metaphysical about it, but, you know, it's just what I love. And so pretty early on, I was lucky in that I found that I loved live music and uh, ended up getting a job in that in that industry. I toured all over the world uh, with bands before I founded Organic in 93, and that seemed like a much more lucrative and <laughs> reasonable thing to do. So I, I gave up my short DJ career and moved on to my digital career. Great. Let's talk about founding organic. Um, tell me a little bit about sort of that, the world at, at that time, what was kind of the context, um, why found it, what was going through your head, why do this? So I founded, co-founded really organic in 1993, in November of 93. So this will be 25 years. Uh, Hard to explain what was going on. I was interested in Prodigy and CompuServe, which most people don't remember or maybe never heard of, but early proto-online sites, and then watched the internet go commercial. And uh, an application called Mosaic, which was the pre-Netscape Mark Andreessen web browser. So two things came together. The internet was commercialized, and the first real browser came out. And so we found it organic with the idea that, hey, we would build websites. Now, we hadn't figured out advertising because literally there was no advertising. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have a background in this. You weren't, you'd graduated with these liberal arts degrees. You'd done all these other things. Sort of what drew you to this? What was kind of the, what was behind all of this? Well, I kind of did have a background in this. I, there weren't a lot of classes you could go take about multimedia at this time. So I taught myself how to do databases and a thing called HyperCard and how to author CD-ROMs. And so I was doing that in the music. I was a sound engineer at night or touring with bands and then playing with computers during the day. So There's some, some synergy there. Yeah, there's, well, the music <laughs> world and the digital world, actually, there's a, a huge overlap. Most people don't see the connection, but if you're in that world, yeah. particularly at that time, it made a lot of sense because a lot of artists were doing work in digital in that in that era. So we just happened to be at the right time in the right place and founded Organic. I think it was the first dot-com. Um, and yeah, here we are 25 years later. What was it like? You, you'd founded this company. Do you remember kind of how you got your first clients? What kind of, did you have, what was the strategy? What was the vision? The vision was to get paid. And, Simple. Uh, it's a good vision. Yeah. It's, it's a great vision. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm on we were, board with this We were vision. just trying to figure out how to, how to yeah, do stuff that we liked that would actually result in getting paid so that we could do it full time. Um, 
it took a while. We had a small record label and a small book publisher because these were people with content. That, those were our first clients. And the, I don't know, we got paid like $2,500 to do those websites. And then uh, my um, former sister-in-law worked at an ad agency and she said, come on in uh, and show my ad agency your stuff. Keep in mind that this is in a spare bedroom in my house set up on two card tables. And we're you know, pitching these huge clients and you know, pretending we're a real company. Uh, <laughs> you left out that important. Yeah, <laughs> so, and that resulted in our first big batch of clients was Volvo, Club Med, um, and MCI, which was a big telecom company at that time. And then Hotwired, which was starting up, which really was the, the publisher, they said, uh, hey, we've got some other clients that need websites. So Zircom Modems, AT&T, oh gosh, there was one other one. Anyways, we ended up doing about six of the first websites and the first banners um, for, for Hotwired. So Hotwired was half the lead and then this ad agency was half the lead. And so we sort of stumbled backwards into advertising. I know that a lot of people say that they did the first banner and most of them are not lying because there were a bunch of first banners. Literally, they turned on Hotwired and there were 12 banners. So, I think we did an um, oral history of the first banner ad uh-huh. and found that to be the case. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Moda Media and Chan Shu from agency.com, like they did do the first banner along with Organic. We all did it at the same time. Um, that sort of kicked off uh, the first advertising and that evolved rather quickly. Uh, you know, from a point with from what's a website to I need a website. I think I charged ten thousand dollars for the Volvo website, so it wasn't it wasn't astronomical dollars. I I was pretty excited at the time. I mean, it was like, hey, we're going to survive. Like at some point, you know, it it did become very very real. I mean, obviously it's very real, uh, but yeah, it was a. I mean, it was hard. It was a struggle. We almost had too much. In fact, for the first. I don't know, seven years of the company. We went from nearly bankruptcy to just growing like crazy. And then we rather quickly developed a lot more, you know, from Nike to Levi's to Saturn motor cars to Sybase and Oracle, Apple. Uh, Yeah, we just had lots of clients. And then we grew from San Francisco to New York to Brazil to, and the company grew really, really quickly. Ultimately, we went public happened pretty quickly so 1994 is when that first banner was launched with hotwired and then the phone started to ring um i'll never forget october 2nd 1994 is the day that hotwired launched october 3rd 1994 is the day that my entire staff quit because they were so exhausted and we had been sitting at these two card tables coding all night for weeks to get this stuff ready. We were also building a lot of what became hotwired, the content management systems, the login systems. A lot of the engineering behind it was actually organic, not to take credit for all of it. They did 95% of it. Um, But we were exhausted and we didn't have any money. And they said, look, there's a lot easier ways (laughs) to live than doing this. So my, my staff of two quit. Did you think about quitting? No, never. You weren't like, I'm tired too. I was definitely tired, but I never thought of quitting. <laughs> what happened? No, it was then? exciting. I mean, it was an exciting time, but that was definitely not a highlight. Of not the a highlight. Journey. Uh, tell me about a highlight. What you know? What when? What after your staff of two quit? You added more staff, I assume. Um, yeah. Afterwards, 
when did you again when did you sort of feel like this is you look around one day and you're like hang on a sec these people all work here these people all work for me yeah around 95 96 things started to really take off and we started to add offices and there were a lot more requests from large clients we got to do we we were more of an engineering led company so we were doing some pretty interesting things we developed apache and put that in the public domain we started to spin off companies. We did the first online yellow pages called Big Book, which eventually got sold. Um, we started another company called Accru Software, which eventually a uh, venture funded company, which went public. So, uh, you know, I ended up running a couple of different companies in the middle of running organic. What was that like? You didn't sleep? Uh, I slept. It was often under my desk in a sleeping bag, but yeah, you know, you got little bits of sleep but it was so i mean it's such an interesting time i mean it's been a the, the one thing i can say about this whole thing the 25 years this is never boring not always fun um but it's never boring i hope you're enjoying the podcast after this break jonathan will talk about how his staff voted him out of the flat hierarchy aisle and everything that was on the line during the crash of 2000 but right now a quick break to tell you about digiday plus digiday plus is our premium membership product join our community to get a first-hand look at how digital is transforming the world of media you'll get digiday magazine exclusive research and invites to exclusive member-only events and it's only 3.95 a year please sign up at digiday.com for you our podcast listeners we have a discount offer to get 25% off your subscription, enter the code starting out at checkout. Now, back to the episode. So your staff is growing and your company's growing, but going from two managers to this big company, when did you start feeling like a manager? What was your style? How did you first even begin? Well, my original inclination as a as a founder of a company was to keep as flat of a hierarchy as possible. So I spent a huge amount of time just saying, hey, I'm just like you. I'll sit in the middle of the floor, have the same desk as everybody else. Like, you know, we're all equal. And I, I kind of got voted off the island. Like my staff said, look, Jonathan, you need to be in an office because quite frankly, we're sick of listening to your phone calls and all the stuff that it takes. It's like a little too much information. And uh, like you need to wall yourself off. Yeah, they, you know, they said, go, go in that room and kind of close the door because you know, we want, we want, like we're doing a lot of work here right. and we need to focus. Um, and there were lots of little things about management that you learn. Tell me a little bit about sort of that, you know, the boss versus equal kind of dynamic. I think a lot of, a lot of people sort of, and especially today, we always talk about everything's egalitarian, everyone sits on the same floor. Um, at some point, I think that there, there is some division drawn as companies grow. Yeah. I think that people want direction, they want a vision and they want something that they can buy into and that needs to come from somewhere or somebody. And it, as you run a larger company, it's hard to say, okay, we're all exactly equal and the vision comes equally from everybody. You know, over time they say, okay, what are we doing? And, you know, being decisive and being clear and fair, uh, I think is really key to being a good manager. Um, but in the back of my head, there is a egalitarian part of this, which is, look, I may have been doing this a little bit longer, but you know, there's really not that much difference between everybody. Tell me about your management style today. Uh, I'd like to think it's inclusive, but um, decisive. So ultimately, I'll take a lot of input to make a decision, but then make a decision and, and then stick with it. 
do you do you remember kind of the best advice somebody had ever given you about management? Do you remember if did you have mentors? Oh, I've had yeah, I've had Tell me three about a few of them. really great mentors, um, which is a hu- have had three people have had just a huge influence on my life and many many others. But the three main ones: one is named Mort Meyerson. He used to be the CEO of EDS, and he taught me about sort of life work balance. He got me into a lot of nonprofit work um, and how to run services companies, how to run technology companies. He ran uh, one of the largest uh, services businesses in in the world back in the 60s and 70s. The other one was a guy named um, Warren Hellman who's passed away, unfortunately. Warren was an incredible guy. He was uh, from an old San Francisco family, very uh, ran Hellman and Friedman, which is a, a very massive private equity firm. He's the guy that took DoubleClick private and then in turn sold it for... How did you meet him? Uh, he tried to buy organic. And while buying organic was out of the cards, we ended up connecting. And so we, we co-founded Bluegrass together. He co-owned clubs with me. And he had an incalculable effect on my career, just sort of the wisdom that came from him was incredible. And he was a, he was a really cool guy because he, he could, I mean, he, he would hang out with every president since Kennedy um, and then hang out with blue, bluegrass musicians all the time. And just an amazing guy taught me about politics, taught me about uh, fundraising for schools, how to pass a bond measure locally, um, and a huge amount about business. And then the third one is John Wren, the CEO of Omnicom, who has stuck with me through 20 years now. This is actually the 20th year that we've worked together. The thing that's amazing about John Wren is he never loses the plot through thick and thin. He always has an idea of where we're going and is uh, very sophisticated about the long, the, the long arc of how to, do a, how to execute a strategy and, and also how to evolve the strategy. And so his patience um, and it, it, his loyalty to his staff is actually, uh, you know, I've never seen anything like it. What would you say your, your biggest weaknesses as a manager or oh, as a gosh, leader? There are, there are many of them. I mean, I wish I knew finance better. You know, sometimes the details get overwhelming. Um, how do you compartmentalize? How do you, cause I'm sure you probably, you probably have a lot of details in your life. There's probably a thousand things being thrown at you. How do you? Turn off. How do you compartmentalize? Well, you start to you stack rank them. First of all, you say what's important, what's not important, which is a real skill, I think, to kind of be able to. It's sort of what I was talking about with Ren. That's something I learned from him was what is important. Like, what is the stuff that you actually devote your energy to, and then what is the stuff that you delegate, and what stuff just should be ignored. Um, and then it never stops. You think about stuff twenty four hours a day when you're running a company the size of Omnicom. So you spend a lot of time processing and, you know, looking at scenarios and vectors of, you know, what happens if we do this? What happens if we do this and that? What's the combination of the two? What, you know, what will the clients do? What will the partners do? What will the staff do? You know, how do we get this done? But you can't always know, too. It's- oh, y- y- <laughs> You don't have to be right 100% of the time, but you do have to be right about 85. About 85. Yeah, 85 to 90% of the time. We're going to talk about the crash now. Um, Walk me through kind of what was in your head, kind of going through the 2000 crash. So 99 was, you know, 
going full blast. I mean, we were just opening offices, hiring people, growing very quickly. Um, I mean, there was a side of it where it's like you're at a party and you know that this can't keep going the way it is. And you're like, "Uh oh, we're going to pay for this. Um, But you can't kind of leave either. What are you going to say? No, you know, I'm not going to do this. Um, I had already taken a company public in 1998, so had some experience doing it. 2000 was a, the beginning of 2000. So the w- ringing in the millennium, I very much remember sitting and thinking, wow, this is going to be a crazy year. My first son was born uh, in April. Um, we, we took Organic Public in February. The market crashed in April. So here I was, uh, the chair chairman of one public company and the CEO of another public company and the market just came out from under us. And it was a very trying time because leading up to that, people were celebrating what you're doing. I mean, you're on the cover of magazines and you know, everybody wants to talk to you and they're telling you how smart you are and all this stuff. And then suddenly, like literally within weeks, it was like, how could you be so stupid? You're spending way too much money. You've, you know, your footprint in real estate's way too big. Your expenses are too high. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, last month you were telling us how great we were and how we needed to grow, grow, grow. And now it's, why aren't you profitable? And so the whole thing just changed. And in the meantime, I had um, a newborn and was still living in a one-bedroom walk-up in San Francisco. So my, fortunately, my lifestyle had not really changed at all. You hadn't got out and bought a couple of Porsches. And- <laughs> there were no private jets in my life. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of kept it contained personally, which ended up saving me. But it was a very scary time because I had a newborn. Um, I ended up buying a house for my folks, my parents. And so I was scared that they were going to lose their house. And, you know, what are we going to do? Um, I mean, fortunately, we ended up selling a crew and we sold organic to Omnicom and it all worked out. But it was, you know, it was pretty touch and go for a, for a year or two there. What did you, did you have a plan B? I mean, once one day at a time, right? Like there was not, you, it was hard to think clearly amidst all of that chaos. I knew it would work out somehow, whether or not organic survived and a crew survived. Uh, yeah, I was, I was pretty worried about it, but, but I knew that something would happen that and it turned out that they ended up both being sold and it did work out. So, Do you ever see any parallels in today of, well, I, I felt this way, I think it was last summer. Um, I think I was at some sort of industry event. Um, it happens in France, that one. And I think there were flamingos in a pool. And I think at one point I said, like, this, is, this feels like those heady days before something horrible and <laughs> crazy happened. I think there was a pig roasting on a spit. And at one point I just looked around and I said, media wow this industry that i'm in and marketing and is this that shark is, is jumping this, moment is this that moment and yeah. i i don't know do you ever do you ever think about the next five years the next 10 years is where are we heading uh yeah of course you look at it and you say is this the moment where it all just like we've reached the apex and i mean you see a giant pig crazy, roasting on yeah. a spit i usually get to there, get there uh, pretty fast um there's a lot of things that are different now than there were in the nineties. Um, Digital is a huge business and it's a cornerstone. There are now generations of people that the digital is really the media that they consume. And so there's a lot to the market that's very real. 
clearly there's a lot to the market that's not real. Like, so when venture capitalists all flood the market with capital, you know, a lot of companies get funded and a lot of them fail. But I think underneath that, there are some very, very real cornerstones of, you know, increasingly of the economy that are changing the face of literally not only how we consume information, but how we buy goods and services, um, how we do transportation. Um, you know, I, it's hard to justify and say, okay, are they worth the market capitalization that they have? But there's absolutely no doubt that it has changed my life, you know, whether it's Amazon Prime or Uber or uh, Google. It's much more real. It's, it's yeah, it, part of it might be a house of cards, but it's, it's based on something. The yeah, foundations. And, and I don't think that is a house of cards. I think that's very, very real. If you had to write a book about your life, what would you call it? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I'm hopefully only halfway through. So I, I turned 50 this year. I've been doing digital stuff for 25 years. I think I've got a ways to go. But the first phase of my career, the book would be called You Don't Miss Your Water Till Your Well Ones Dry. The crash of 2000 was pretty devastating. Kind of the second phase of this, I always think of this in terms of music. Mm -hmm. So um, I love the song, A Change Is Gonna Come, which has incredible overtones, particularly in you know this moment in time, you know, as we're recording this. But, uh, and then hopefully the end of it is Slow and Steady Wins the Race. All right, a three-part trilogy. Yeah. That's Jonathan Nelson, CEO at Omnicom Digital. And that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like our show, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. While you're there, please rate us. Leave us a five-star review. I'm Shereen Patek. We'll see you next week.